we know education is important. We know initiatives are important. But what we try to apply, and this is something that we do kind of as a part of our strategy to service too, is like we don't overfix a problem. We mm. try to find the smallest, most surgical fix that has the greatest impact because we know next time you run this process, another problem is going to come up and your original solution might not be the ideal solution. So a small solution is easy to do, highly effective, but also easy to throw away. And I think that's really valuable, especially when you're iterating. It's like nobody's ego is tied to that solution that they made because the next solution is always better. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Lebo Lee. Lebo is COO of Oyansi. I am very excited to chat with him today about his career journey and a couple of really cool topics centered around data, scanning, and leadership. So really excited. Thanks, Lebo, for joining us. No, absolutely. Let's do it. So what's uh, just, I always like to start with uh, Mm. career trajectory. Like what's been your journey so far to date? How did you get to Boyancy? So it's a little bit of a roller coaster, but I started architecture school, graduated, did a brief stint in the architecture industry. Then I went to WeWork where I started as a BIM modeler for enterprise, doing a ton of kind of their early mass custom work then moved on to design automation as a design technologist. So kind of making tools and deploying them for a lot of the architects and designers at WeWork. Um, And then finally to kind of real estate analytics, where we're taking kind of a lot of the building information that we were able to gather and making kind of predictive sort of models for potential uh, outcomes. From there on, I went to uh, CBR Yohana briefly before coming to was then and it was AC Resource for a part of their new brand, uh, AC Lab, which was the software and consulting offering. After running that for a few months, we saw kind of a big synergy between kind of the whole company. So we kind of re-strategized, uh, reorganized and rebranded. And now we're Voyancy. That's cool. So what would you say is like the pitch for Voyancy? What are you doing ultimately? So we're all about building intelligence. We think, you know, no matter where you are, if you use buildings, you can do make better decisions with building data. So we provide end-to-end services, anywhere from reality capture all the way up to software platforms and consulting and implementation. And even if you just need extra muscle to do some of the grunt work for you, um, we kind of do it all. So we're kind of a comprehensive solution for you to move kind of into this digital practice that we all kind of must move into now, I guess. Yeah. And when you say the word building intelligence, can you unpack Mm -hmm. a little bit of what that would mean for you? So I think this for me, it became really a salient when working at WeWork. There's a lot of engineers and a lot of really uh, great people who are really good at working with tabular data, but kind of spatial data is much different. It has certain rule sets to it. Buildings have certain like part to hold relationships that must stay intact. I feel like Revit is a version of the system where it constrains you to certain rules. But I think building intelligence is kind of that additional layer where we're actually implementing best practices in terms of analysis on top of spatial data. Very cool. And I guess that that will tie into a little bit when we start talking about like scanning, like 3D scanning. So as COO, how would you then describe your role on a day-to-day basis? I do a little bit of everything, but mostly I try to make connections in data and reduce the number of meetings we have, try to create more direct connections between, you know, different parts of our business around kind of our new customer focus. So I work a lot with data systems, a lot with different teams, kind of untangling a lot of existing processes. Very cool. That resonates deeply with us at Monograph, I think you know. But And so as COO, how is your team currently structured that supports you or that directly works with you? 
So I think November, around November last year, we reorganized into a function and level matrix structure. So our biggest department is product where the majority of our work occurs, but then we have accounting, project control, human resources, and then customer success, marketing, and sales and growth. It bubbles up to me and at CO, and then Mike at CGO, we kind of work in tandem covering where we can. Um, and then that boils up to Tyson as CEO in terms of the overall business. Very cool. And so when we're talking about your role in terms of like the, you mentioned a little bit about like the cross-functional data mm-hmm. that's coming across, is it that on a day-to-day basis, you're trying to connect the dots between these different functions and have it roll up into something that's much clearer for the organization to understand? Like maybe unpack a little bit of that, what that looks like. Mm-hmm. I guess a little bit of both. So operationally, my main, uh, I guess, task is connecting our data systems. So from the inception of the deal, the prospect all the way down to delivery and payment, connecting identifiers and kind of data sets between our systems. On an operational level, uh, it's much more kind of inter-team handoffs. So we do a lot of work where our scanning team might be handing off to our modeling team, might be handing off to our software team. So creating protocols, best practices, and even just like human-to-human connections between those teams to better facilitate their work together. And your team is currently, where is it situated? So the majority um, of our companies in Cordoba, Argentina, amazing people. We rely heavily on our wonderful team there and they kind of do the majority of the heavy lifting, right? Like our chief product officer is down there kind of reorganizing our entire service portfolio into a new simplified more product portfolio. Our kind of head of finance is running a finance of a very complex corporate structure, especially internationally. Our head of product control has to do ESO certification and compliance and all of that stuff. So we feel very global, I guess, as a family, but most of our family is there. Wow. So inherently, for you, it, it operates more like a remote company. What would you say? Because this is actually sort of top of mind for not just Monograph, we're a fully remote business. And a lot mm-hmm. of our customers have transitioned to some sort of hybrid model, either work from home or some of them actually have embraced fully remote. For you as a fully remote operation, what have been some of the lessons learned along the way? And like maybe what is applicable to an architecture firm today? At the risk of like being too broad, I think trusting your people. They're miles away for me. You know, anybody's could be any distance, but really like if you trust someone with the expectations that you give them, just trust them to do a good job. And so far, like our team has done an amazing job, went beyond expectations. So really, I think just trusting people to do the best that they can is really the best thing. Do you feel that remote work is something that, you know, because I think in in the AEC industry, right, it's Mm -hmm. like typically been seen that like being in the office is a big part of it, of how work gets done. But it seems like you've been able to manage complexity at a pretty broad scale remotely completely. Like, is that, do you have any insights from that? Like, or any uh, positions that you take strongly on? I have very strong remote work positions and I'm very pro, but knowing that bias, um, I think, you know, systems like Monograph where it allows people to understand their kind of company status asynchronously, right? Like you can sort of just pop awake any moment, look on the dashboard and see what everyone's doing, where your role is, what you should do next. So for me, I think that's the two parts of my work. Like one, the more time I get to spend smoothing some of these connections, the more time in face-to-face meetings, we could actually just, you know, create connection and really enjoy kind of being in the presence of people rather than being like, hey, can you check that number for me? Like, what is this? Um, And a lot of those kind of like redundant business transactions that would otherwise be better done on a platform. Right, right. It seems like in your role, which is in some ways novel the way you talk about it, because, you know, sometimes 
operations can be seen to be more about, there's maybe one approach is how you're describing it, which is really rooted in data. The other approach is rooted more so in procedure, where it's like that procedure may or may not have actionable data associated with it, right? So like there's terms that are used a lot, like standard operating procedure, SOPs that help to frame how work is done. Almost think of it for those that might not be familiar, like a it could be as like a checklist almost, right? Of like, here's what we're going to do for this specific thing, or here are the guardrails for this other specific thing. But your approach is a bit different in which it seems like the standard operating procedures are actually baked into data from the get-go. Like, it's not just like, as an example, it would, it's not that something lives in a Google Doc, right? As like a sort of standard operating procedure, it should live somewhere more, let's say, accessible or intelligent, Can you walk us through a little bit of how you think about data in relation to to processes and things? No, absolutely. And I I don't know if anyone's here from the company, but I've like said this quote way too many times. It's the Melvin Conley quote is like organizations that design systems are, you know, likely design systems that are mirrors of kind of the way they are. So I think for us, it's like, look, if you keep your standard procedure on a sheet and then you do something else, you're inherently going to produce work and products that are reflective of that separation. And that's why we are so conscious of like building a data culture inherently in kind of every level is just so that everyone knows that they're a stakeholder and whatever they do and their own kind of iterative process has kind of this carryover to how this company understands its operations. So we kind of place that responsibility on every individual at every level. Hmm. And how do you develop the infrastructure to help them? Putting the responsibility is one thing, but then there's also you know, diversity of experience when it comes to being able to do it by themselves? Like what kind of infrastructure do you help set up for them? So we try to take a, like a progressive approach to kind of adoption. Um, the, the system that we set up internally um, roughly is mostly kind of G Suite connected to BigQuery. I don't know if people are too familiar with the technology, but traditionally when you set up a kind of data warehouse with a kind of office applications, there's a very difficult connection that you have to make with a lot of people, a lot of engineers. But because Google has kind of made the connection inherent in the platform, we're able to separate the concerns. So someone like me, who is mangling all the messy data stuff, connecting stuff, and like building SQL queries, the data that I produce is usable downstream for someone who only knows like Google Sheets or like only knows um, Data Studio or like a Power BI kind of like software. And they just pull like pre-clean data that's connected across the company down into a place where they perform analysis. And it's kind of this continuity where through kind of teaching, through coaching, through small initiatives and projects, we really encourage people to kind of move from one end of the gradient to the other. So as you understand more about our systems, our data, um, you can kind of take a deeper dive into a deeper skill set. I think to maybe bring it down to like a, a use case specific example, how would somebody, let's say on the product team, leverage data? And by product, maybe be more specific, like this product can be have many different words or mean different things, sorry, for people. Product for you is what is it? Is it based on like actual design of like spatial products? Are we talking about spatial products? Are we talking about digital products? So service products. Service products. Yeah. In design service products, mm-hmm. how does that team then leverage? What kind of data would might they leverage to inform what they're doing? So in a service product, uh, kind of our core resource is people. We have a, a level of managers within product who are in charge of teams um, that deliver kind of this work. And we are rebucketing some things and we're changing some things around. But uh, fundamentally, what they're trying to manage is their prediction of the future. Do I have 
enough tasks for my team for the next week? If so, if not, if I have too much, get someone. If I don't have enough, are there other teams that can use the skill set of the people on my team? So we kind of do this constant cycle every week and every SDM keeps their information in their own Google sheet, but we have an aggregated sheet between product sales um, and operations and HR where every week we look at not only the incoming work, but also existing work, future work, and also kind of our headcount. Okay, so basically part of the culture of the company from a data perspective is that people within any function should be able to have sort of broad awareness of what's happening in any other function. And I guess by providing that accessibility to them, and I think you might touch upon this a bit, but like probably part of just probably the infrastructure is also probably teaching them about how to use the data effectively. Mm But it seems like that's helpful to like empower them. I mean, I think it's like the where sometimes I love how you described it. And there's a, a different way in which Ben Thompson from Stratechery describes this is basically like you ship the org, like companies ship their org, basically, mm-hmm. where like Apple ships its org, Facebook the same. And so when you think about an architecture firm, shipping the org has implications for how products, uh, sorry, how projects end up ultimately, right? And from what you're describing, this kind of cross-functional use of data could lead to, and it seems like it's for you, it's you have reason to believe that it's leading to better outcomes completely, right? I mean, I definitely feel so. One of the things that I talk to our head of product a lot, and he says this a lot in a lot of his presentations, like we're building a hive mind, right? In a way where we definitely felt like we weren't like this maybe six months ago, but more recently we would just chat each other. It's like, hey, I'm thinking about this and they're already working on it, right? Like that kind of organizational sensitivity where everyone's like pointing in the same direction and also stepping towards these convergence points where their data matches. The effects are amazing. I think the recent example we had is we wanted to prioritize these services, but also we wanted to refresh the uh, pricing sheet, but also build kind of an end-to-end data connection between the deal side and the project side. So head of growth, manage all the line items, all of our product portfolio and HubSpot, head of product, manage our product portfolio, unit costs, what we're able to provide. And then I thought this was going to be a day-long task to sit down, write the SQL and like build all this dashboards. It only took me 10 minutes. So, you know, when everyone's, you know, working towards kind of these common goals with the right kind of, I guess, motivations in mind, these convergence points are very simple to put together. From your experience working at firms, what would you say like prevents an organization, like like an architecture firm specifically from Mm -hmm. thinking this way today? And don't get me wrong. I think a lot of it's fear. We, I've encountered this a lot teaching. It's kind of like in the company, like I've taught everything from like project management to like product management all the way to like SQL. And a lot of it is getting someone to take the first step, right? Write that first line, maybe use a new formula they've never experimented with, make a mistake that they didn't feel like they could make before. And it's really kind of getting rid of that fear and knowing that when you come out on the other side, you'll be stronger and you're more capable. And that organizationally, if everyone does that, you're a much stronger organization. Right, right. It's like the permission to fail is so critical. I think it's one of those things where so much of what blocks us when we're working is just the perception of failure, not even amongst us, but what other people think of, of what you're, you know, the risk you're taking on anything. And I think when you're in an organization that allows you to take chances that trusts you and your capacity to learn specifically from that failure. I think that's where you unlock like unbounded talent from people that you might not have anticipated. It's the counter is much probably more true in in architecture where like culture of fear can prevent people 
from actually producing some of the best work they have. And which is fascinating, right? Because if anything, I always like to think of architects as being eternal optimists in some regard, right? They have to be because like, it's such a, in the face of so much adversity in different ways, right? Clients, governments, what have you, you always have to show up optimistically. And yet, you know, I think some of that optimism can get lost sometimes in the shuffle in terms of how an organization is designed. And uh, yeah, this kind of like permission to failure is seems pretty critical to unlocking that. And also de-risking failure. I think that's also where like open communication and early detection really is important. It's like you can fail, but tell someone as soon as right. you know, right? Like don't right. wait for it to be like a catastrophic failure when everyone has to scramble to fix it to tell anyone. So it kind of goes hand in hand. This conversation it has to do with learning and teaching, you know, sort of the, the, the meta theme here. What are the, the tools that you use to help to effectively educate your team members on, like, there's the resources of being able to do the work of providing them the data, right? You write the SQL queries, you do that kind of like, let's say, IC work or individual contributor work of doing that. And then, but from a strategy perspective, is there anything else that you provide to your teams that help them self-educate themselves even? which is like the next level, right? When you have a yeah. team that can not only think like a hive mind, but also mm-hmm. learn autonomously at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually what's amazing about this team is like they've done it organically. They've started teaching each other using like Google Classroom or just like video chat. Oh, wow. um, our, our lunch and learns are a lot like that where it's kind of organic, right? People love actually teaching, especially product retrospects. Like, hey, I learned to use Scrum on this project. It worked really well for me. This is why, this is how you can apply it to your project. And I think a lot of it's like when you open that culture and you say, hey, you know, it's encouraged for you to share. I'm sharing too. People are very willing to share the knowledge. That's, I mean, that's amazing. That's awesome. I think there, I'm sure some of it comes from having worked at a place like we work where certain places it definitely felt that um, you had that level of freedom. You mentioned a little bit of like the retrospective or post sort of analysis. So I'm not sure if everyone knows in, in the crowd, but we are now doing these conversations in Clubhouse, which is a really cool new app, basically sort of like, not sure how to describe it. I think it's like real time, stuff like this, basically, just like conversation, but you can invite anybody to speak. And one thing that we were talking about, we had an event on Monday talking about saying no to clients specifically, which had to do a lot with like due diligence and like some of the, you know, that was sort of the angle. But we had people show up that were talking more about post-project analysis and they took the conversation in that direction which was great. We ended up trying to understand this a little bit more deeply by surveying like monograph followers and about on like Instagram and about 33% of the respondents said that they used, that they did do post-project analysis. Mm-hmm. 67% said they didn't, but the ones that did say they, sorry, the ones that said they didn't wanted to, or a lot of them felt like, oh, it would be great if we could do that. Maybe you could speak a little bit about how that's worked for you. Like being able to have retrospectives on projects and you mentioned Scrum, so maybe I'm sure it's tied a little bit into that in terms of like how you practice operations on a weekly basis. No, totally. So our teams use different techniques and that's totally kind of up to them. I think in a project retrospective, a lot of what it also comes into question is the method by which you manage the project. So whether Scrum was successful or not, I think is very much a part of the retrospective because like you have to really question everything. I think for us, we take the retrospective a little bit more loosely. We kind of really put the onus on the team to evaluate and own their own solutions. One recent example is we ran into some potentially catastrophic trouble on a project. Uh, We just got all the team together, you know, on a lunch and learn. They talked it through. They identified kind of two major initiatives. 
and they're leading it. They come up with a project schedule, kind of what the priorities are. And we just tell them like, hey, we're available as a resource. Like I can do Revit, I can write Python, like whatever you need me to do, just tell mm -hmm. me, but you own the solution because you did the project, you know what went wrong. So you're the best person to plan the fix. There's a subtext to what you're saying in a way where it's like, when you say the word initiatives, that's a very fascinating word within practice because oftentimes the whole structure of a lot of architecture firms is predicated on billable time mm -hmm. and non-billable time by extension. And so then the question of like, where do initiatives slot in within your existing team structure? How have you managed that? And what have you seen to be the benefit of allowing for that? Is it that your business model is not predicated at all on billable time? Do you track time in that way at all? I'm, I'm curious. So to... we, we absolutely track time. Time is the fundamentals of our business. And to be honest, we haven't found the right solution. We're still iterating. But we know education is important. We know initiatives are important. But what we try to apply, and this is something that we do kind of as a part of our strategy to service too, is like we don't overfix a problem. We mm. try to find the smallest, most surgical fix that has the greatest impact because we know next time you run this process, another problem is going to come up and your original solution might not be the ideal solution. So a small solution is easy to do, highly effective, but also easy to throw away. And I think that's really valuable, especially when you're iterating. It's like nobody's ego is tied to that solution that they made because the next solution is always better. Right. Done is better than perfect in some way. Yeah. It's like you're highlighting... What I love about what you're saying there too is ultimately it's a way in which you make decisions that's easily communicated to the rest of the team that will then help them make decisions by saying like, this is how we solve problems. We solve mm -hmm. it not by over, over indexing. We solve it by just being very specific and just building mm -hmm. the one thing that needs to get done today helps people do that and apply that on their day to day. Right. So in other words, you don't ever have to be there to say, Hey, you need to do it this way. It's mm -hmm. now a learned behavior that has probably led to unmeasurable efficiency improvement across the yeah. company, right? Mm -hmm. I don't even know like the ripple effects, right? Like, because I only see what I see and I try to be as sensitive to as many people as possible, but there's 150 people in the company. And a lot of it also goes with kind of our culture of education and also like empowering people to have the skills. So with G Suite, Google Apps Scripts is really accessible. SQL is pretty accessible through BigQuery. So a lot of the fixes that people actually need, they have the power to do so. Like Dynamo um, is something that you can learn and do design automation. So half of it is helping them hone in on the problem. And the other half is just giving them the right tools to solve it themselves. The implication that you're also describing here too, of like everybody have access to like data warehouses, it seems like there's a pretty transparent culture too, when it comes to, to data. Would you say that's a fair assessment? We try to be. I think this is also where the, the depth of permissioning we're allowed to do through both G Suite and Data Warehouse helps us. We could just do it through groups. So as we work through our compliance and our different standards, we can just set up these gates in the right places. So we don't have to worry about whether someone's accessing data that they don't have access to. Shifting gears a little bit, I'm very curious about some of the work that you've done recently. I know that you've done quite a bit of work within 3D scanning. I know some people on your team are well known for that within WeWork for having like led the 3D scanning arm. And what I want to dive a little bit into is the fact that like you mentioned tabular data versus spatial data. And we're using even a lot of like the BigQuery stuff is, is still the world of tabular data, which hasn't hasn't really penetrated, I would say, architecture firms by and large. And now with spatial data, we're now adding another level of complexity. 
But I'm very curious is like, what are the kind of projects that are being driven right now through the firm that are making a lot of, that are being used, that are using 3D scanning heavily by extension? What have you seen? How have you seen that impact maybe the, even the near future of services in general, architecture in general? No, it's definitely going to be a game changer for sure. I think if you ever talked to me before, I, I, I freaking love reality capture. And it's it's for me like one of the the moment where we have an unbiased uh, sense of real world space, right? Like every time before it's some guy measuring and drawing. And so there's always a layer of interpretation. So that kind of raw data set is something that's constant. You can always go back to, you can always reevaluate. Um, and at WeWork, that's proven, that proved for us really valuable, whether we're doing kind of floor leveling reports or laying out to space accuracy, or just like even going back and checking like, what does the sign say and things like that. Here, uh, I mean, the like the kind of products we engage in just blow the doors wide open on what reality capture is capable. Like we're working on a, like a nuclear decommissioning project where we went in, scanned it, modeled it, and now we're working through kind of like a time phase deconstruction of the model to be then done in field. We're working with manufacturers where we transport it into a BIM model, but then that aligns with a protocol where they can then turn it into their internal systems where they do kind of simulations on the floor and uh, kind of clashes between their equipment, people, and things like that. So there's a huge, I guess, world out there for reality capture, but kind of the thread is always taking some aspect of the real world and transforming it as accurately into the digital world as possible. I mean, it's seemingly because of COVID, right? It seems like 3D scanning has become much more pervasive. I mean, just mm -hmm. the virtual touring aspect is one use case. Mm -hmm. Has it, do you feel like the use cases have just been not completely fully tapped into when it comes to 3D scanning? Yeah, I think we're so early. The tech is only going to get better, smaller, more accurate, more accessible. But also the workflows that are going to start happening are going to greatly expand. I think one of the things that kind of hit my mind when I think about this is like when hardware prototypers go from San Francisco to Shenzhen because they're just that much closer to the source. They can get a prototype much faster and cycle much faster. Um, and I think it's the same thing with scanning, right? Like if say you're working on a project far away, you scan it and your prototype cycle is so much faster. You don't have to wait until going back to site to re-verify something to make sure your design works. How accurate are, I'm sure people have a lot of questions about accuracy too. It's like mm -hmm. how accurate are off-the-shelf solutions for for 3D scanning today? So, I mean, Brad's in here. So if you need more detail help, talk to Brad Shapiro. He's an expert. But from what I remember, the BLK, which is like probably the most accessible terrestrial scanner now, it's accurate within, I think, 10 millimeters under 10 meters. So fairly accurate, like much better than hand measuring. That's, so the tolerances right now are pretty much like you can go from that to a measured drawing pretty uh, confidently. Absolutely. Um, like if you don't have existing plans for anything, I think scanning is honestly your first and best bet. And how expensive is it today to be able to scan something? So our day rate is $2,000 a day. It depends on how much space you have. But I think a BLK is $10,000 for the equipment. Depending on how you're registering, there's additional costs. But I think for an architecture firm, if you factor in the amount of money you spend going to site, the change orders that happen because of site verification issues, um, and also coordination issues, scanning easily pays for itself. Mm, that's really cool. That's awesome. Maybe we can talk a little bit about, there's a, a project we had talked about earlier, which is really interesting, Barrio 31, that maybe you can spend a little time talking about that one. Because that one's also, while it is within the realm of 3D scanning, I think mm. there's something about what you were describing on that's really interesting within a government organization. 
Uh, totally. So I think for me, that project really captures one of the future capabilities of it is kind of mapping unknown space. Um, and Barrio 31 is kind of a favela um, in Argentina. So it's kind of this unplanned neighborhood um, that grew organically. And what the company did is like, we went in, we scanned the whole neighborhood, and then we modeled and figured out which uh, what each unit actually constituted. And the task from the government is like, hey, you know, like we need to actually make these places livable. Uh, we need to do improvements in a very organized way. So with the BIM model that resulted from the scan, we can then do the planning and have kind of a per unit kind of task order for the contractor to go and make the fixes and improvements as necessary. But, you know, before this, there wasn't even a map of what each unit was. That's fascinating. I mean, being able to go to like places like that and then provide a tool that helps the government understand how to improve the daily life of people there. One thing um, that I'm also curious about is the tools that you use. Um, we mentioned a little bit about BigQuery. I think to back up a little bit, ultimately, when we say things like data warehouse, what we ultimately mean is a giant database that holds together various sources of data so that it's much easier for an analyst to come in or someone within the company to join different data sets together because it lives in one place. And so that's sort of what we mean when, when talking about that. But I'm curious about other tools that are maybe a little bit more accessible on a day-to-day -day basis for people that are maybe looking to redesign their operations today. What would you recommend is like really helpful for people to get started with? Airtable. I love Airtable. I'm a big fan. I think what Airtable is, really teaches you is data design. And it does it in a really friendly way. Their help articles are great. So for like an early entry into kind of more of a database way of thinking, Airtable is great. We love Notion. When we first started as AC Lab, it was kind of three people. So we needed something to organize all of our information plus our projects. So as of maybe six months ago, we were at like maybe 50 projects in there. And now we're at like 365 with the whole company. So it's really kind of just ballooned in use. So it's a great tool, fairly accessible once you get used to the, the way that it nests information. And of course, I'm a big G Suite lover. If I see that you're in Microsoft, I automatically know that I can improve your efficiency by 30% by moving you into G Suite and putting all your spreadsheets in one place. That's yeah. Yeah. I'm also a big fan of G Suite as well. For Notion, how do you mm -hmm. use it to help educate your the rest of your team? Like what's the way, because Notion for those that might not be aware is it's almost like a mix between a wiki and maybe Google Docs to some degree in some capacity and maybe spreadsheets because it has like, you can generate tables in there that are inter can be interlinked to other tables. But how are you more specifically using it to help people learn? It's again, like with empowerment and accessibility because Notion is so friendly, anyone can write what they learn or like a guide to something. Um, and then the search functionality is really powerful as well. So just kind of go in there um, and searching for specific articles. But again, this is part of why we're always iterating. We are starting to move into kind of a much more mature knowledge-based system in HubSpot where we can share with the public, but also into Google Classroom and kind of Google Drive, which is a much more, I guess, structured way to group content. Mm. What's an example of something you would used in a Google Classroom or like that you would teach through Google Classroom? So uh, I guess intro to product management. Product management is probably like a super foreign concept to a lot of people in our industry. So it's really helpful to, you know, add videos, books, additional kind of online content to say like, hey, this is the presentation, but it's sourced from all of these other places that you can take a deeper dive in. 
And, you know, maybe someone takes a deeper dive. They're like, oh, actually, I learned a bunch more about product management. Let me teach another class. We can slot into the same classroom. So it's there for everybody else after. And anybody basically can go in and make their own, like they go and make their own classroom and then use these lunch and learns, which you mentioned, but we didn't dive too much into it. But these lunch and learns are basically the way in which you structure internal knowledge or like they are the vehicle by which... Yeah, we kind of have a few different vehicles. Um, we have a mentorship program, which is a really great vehicle as well, kind of connecting people across different levels, cross-functionally to just you know meet regularly to share knowledge and kind of be invested in the personal aspect of their teammates. We do book clubs, which is really helpful, especially across languages. It's really helpful for our, our team down in Argentina to kind of practice uh, speaking and reading and uh, really kind of like deeper dialogue with you know native speakers lunch and learns, and just general classes. Like when we were training all the time, we were training basically Tuesday, Thursday, and two slots. And it was kind of this, anybody who had a great course can contribute. That's fascinating. I'm thinking about like the education structure that you set up in place. And going back to a little bit about what we were talking about with initiatives, Mm -hmm. this is, I mean, I think people are hearing this and there's like, wow, that's a lot of time dedicated to like internal processes. Mm-hmm. and open to anybody in the company. And the sort of the question is like, how are the results expressing themselves? Like, how do you know as a leader that ultimately this is working? I mean, it's tough. We've only, since our the start of our rework to now, uh, with the rebranding, we've maybe passed five months. So it's fairly early. And I totally understand kind of the worry with spending a lot on internal process, but actually we're fairly efficient at it. With the right templates, the right, Kind of structure, you can slap together a deck fairly quickly, you know, pulling through together resources in Google Drive. Like, I think the fastest class I've ever put together, kind of the morning of the class I had to give was like an hour and a half. With the right tools, the right templates, you can do it super fast and you can fail, right? It's okay to be in the middle of class and say, sorry guys, like I misspelled a bunch of stuff on the slide. I actually mean this um, because we know we're going to do it again and it's going to be better. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I think we can kind of move to Q&A with one last question. Mm-hmm. What is something a small firm, like let's say it's a, let's say three to 10 person firm Mm -hmm. could do today, whether it's like maybe more specifically, like how would they be able to build out their own like internal dashboard today? If you were given, let's say they were tracking some of this information in spreadsheet, or if you can at least get them into a Google spreadsheet, what would you use to help them create a dashboard today? So, I mean, I think if you have Excel, Excel is able to compile spreadsheets. So if you have a central server, you can do that. I mean, even if it's just a 10-person firm, you're passing files around. At the very basic, you should establish some practice of standardized data tables that you can then pull together to analyze the business in the perspective you want. Um, It's good to adopt this practice early. So when your business gets more complex and you adopt more complex systems, that you're able to transfer these practices into them. The reason why I love G Suite so much over Excel is that in G Suite, there's this great function called import range, and we use the crap out of import range. So any two sheets you have permissions on, you can live pull data in. So my fidelity of data at the project level can get aggregated to the data at the company level automatically. So we can set up all sorts of these different connections just from spreadsheets alone that allow us to have a live sense of what's going on all the way on the other side of the company. Uh, That's awesome. That's great. And I'm sure there's ways in which this can dive into project level data as well. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, like in Monograph, you can export out like the timesheet entries for in the CSV and then be able to slice that up in with pivot tables, right? To get more information that we currently do not provide in our reporting necessarily. But um, yeah, I want to open it up to any Q&A or any questions that people might have in the, the audience. I think there is a question here about if you have any recommendations for a firm or office looking to get started with reality capture. That's a fun one. Uh, maybe like traditional surveyors won't agree, but I would start with Matterport. Super easy to use, super simple. The Matter Pack I think is $99. So you could just get someone to get you a Matterport, download that point cloud, and that's your early start. I think for me, especially if you're adopting this technology at the beginning, building a workflow around point clouds is probably the hardest thing to learn. The acquisition technology, that's gonna be shifting and constantly changing. So you can always, I guess, use the right technology on the right job when given the situation. That's great. That's, that's really helpful. And then I know that the Matterport is now available on phones too. But they discontinued the Matterpack with the phone and spherical camera scanning. So you have to at least, at the minimum, use a BLK. Uh, oh, for that. wow. Wow. Very cool. Thanks for that. What have been the biggest challenges for you in growing the team or? Not stressing them out too much. With all the shifts in technology, I think, you know, I, I counted for this, we adopted seven platforms <laughs> since five months ago. It's really stressful, like getting used to the way you work. And then all of a sudden, you know, some crazy guy comes in and is like, okay, you know, we're going to change everything. Mm. Things are going to work differently, right? You're now structured differently. So I think for me, that's been the biggest struggle. And I really have to credit this team for supporting us throughout this whole transition. They've been super supportive, super adaptive. Um, and we challenge them with some really crazy stuff. And they've come out on the other side winning for sure. Yeah. It's like change management is, I feel like if you can narrow, if you can handle change management internally within the company, then it's easier for you to also handle change management when it comes to customers or clients. Because ultimately things are constantly changing, no matter whether it's internal or external. How have you personally grown as a leader? It's definitely been a challenge. I think this is the most people who I've been responsible for ever in such a short time. I definitely had to learn a lot very quickly. But I think also deeply kind of being curious in how a business runs and operates throughout all my past experiences has really helped me come to this point. Kind of seeing other leaders, how they make decisions based on their context, whether it's in KPF, an architecture firm, or like at WeWork, or like even Casa, like a very small boutique firm leaders make decisions very differently. So kind of being conscious and seeing all the choices of leaders past and hoping that I can be a better leader by making the right different choices. That's kind of what's been the most, the biggest learning experience for me. Oh, right on. Let's see. Oh, I have one here from Afan. Okay, I'll try to reframe this one. Question has to do with experience a lot of resistance from let's say professionals who might not have grown up with the technologies that are being mm -hmm. used today or just might not have as much exposure to them on a tactical level. So like even from like from moving from 2D to 3D, those changes have been made. How much resistance have you experienced in working through overhauling that? I mean, we talked a little bit about change management. Like internally, you're making these changes in a short amount of time. What would you suggest for people that are trying to make these changes internally in their own organizations where support may not be there necessarily from the top or they just don't know what they don't know, right? So I guess two things to that. One is a really early uh, book club book that we all did. It's called The Art of Explanation. In it, there's this concept of the kind of the, I think it's the understanding curve from like A to Z, where like A is your non-expert, no idea what you're talking about, and Z is your expert. And you try to place the people you're talking to on different parts of the scale 
but also put yourself on the scale. And the distance in between is what you have to cover in any kind of conversation, presentation, or things like that. So we work a lot on simplifying, you know, using the right analogies and just trying again and again until the explanation uh, sticks. But kind of on the other side, one way to get support is to just show them some magic. You know, if you're capable of building some of these magical things yourself, that sometimes is the best. This was brought up a little bit in a previous best practice uh, webinar with Renz Hayes, where there was a conversation about sort of initiative or self-initiative when it comes to, let's say you're you're uh, an architect within a company and you're trying to make some change happen internally, which is what we're talking about. The vehicles by which to do that oftentimes is not waiting, necessarily waiting around for the change to happen. It's ultimately taking the initiative to propose something or to like take something to some level. Um, what have been the instances in your own career where that, where that kind of approach has been helpful? I mean, do you have any anecdotes about moments that were pretty key where you're like, oh, okay, I went from like, I took initiative on something and something changed because of it internally. I mean, before you became CEO, obviously. I mean, I think people that have worked with me know I'm a pretty abrasive guy. Sometimes I'll just do something just because I think it's the best way. And I don't uh, worry about throwing away work. So if I build it and it doesn't work, people don't like it. So be it, right? At least I spent enough time to build an MVP to prove the possible effectiveness of what I'm proposing. I think a lot of the challenges with proposing things is that with a deck, it's very hard for the other person to see the world that you see it. Um, Mm. Until you give them something that gives them that window of glimpse into the world the way you see it, that won't come across. And for me, the thing that's been most effective to do that is to build small projects that show that first step. Yeah, I could see that. But would you say that, I mean, it feels like that instance makes a lot of sense when what you're proposing is something that ultimately, like that is the best medium for it. So in other words, like if I created like a, a business case mm-hmm. that had like revenue impact, it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to show, to build out the prototype for that. Let's say if it's not software based, right? It's like, hey, we can, if we move towards standardizing a certain type of project that we do often, we can save X amount of time. Right. Right. And that's totally where like the refining the problem and being surgical really comes in. It's like as an individual architect, say you're working in CAD, right? You and your buddy next to you creating a CAD library that's well organized, accessible and usable across multiple projects. That's easy. It's not going to be a lot of your time and you can just use project time on it. But it's something that you can then show the effectiveness of the approach. You can say like, hey, you know, my buddy and me and now 50 percent of the firm are contributing to this self-organized block library, we would love to get some leadership support because we've seen it speed our workflow up, you know, 50% or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. It's like these things also, the way you're describing it is there's other stakeholders that have bought in already by the time it's like, hey, let's put more resources on this or whatever. And I think that's an effective vehicle. It's when you have excitement, especially across teams and across mm-hmm. disciplines, when it's, it's when people are it's like you've shown the work, you've done the work in a way. And so it's much easier for someone to say yes to it. I think also the other way is like someone in a leadership position might not see the problem the same way as, you know, boots on the ground. And I think us from a business perspective, especially B2B have that same problem is like when the business leader comes to us with the problem, we're like, oh, actually, it's just this. And then we actually talk to the people doing the work. They're like, oh, wait, actually, it's totally this. So that disconnection kind of happens both ways. So in a way, it's kind of like if we educate kind of everyone who's and enable them to build some of these solutions, they can much stronger case on their side for help from us at a much higher level. Yeah, very cool. If there's not any more questions, I'm going to ask my go-to final question here. Mm-hmm. 
What is the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? I was prepared for this because I saw your news update. I'm going to have to say it's my parents really not only kind of saying, but also showing that you could be limitless. You know, my, my parents came from China. Like I was born there. They continued to grind. Um, my mom got an MBA while pregnant with my brother and taking care of me. Right. So she could do anything. So for me to say like it's impossible or something's hard, it's meaningless compared to them. So for me, it's kind of like this bottom where I know I can always do better. And that's really helped me for sure. Wow. Yeah. I resonate with that. I also coming from an immigrant family too. Yeah. There's something about being able, in my mind, it's always like, well, at the end of the day, I can always go like, you've already seen sort of what grow, what the struggle looks like. And it's, there's less fear because of it. It's like, oh, okay, let's just go back to that. Worst case ever. Like, obviously I'm much more uh, progressed in my life now than maybe uh, than, than before, but still. I mean, it's, it's also a fear, right? It's like yeah. for someone who had so little to accomplish so much and for you to have so much and accomplish so little, like it's that fear <laughs> that you're not <laughs> even close to capitalizing on your potential. Yeah, uh, well put, well put. I should do have a, one other question here uh, and maybe we can close off with that. But Veronica asks about recruiting. Mm-hmm. Do you look for flexible and open people that are flexible and open to adaptation? Or is it something that you help to train people on when they're part of the team? Like, where's that balance or like, how is that part of your recruitment process? I mean, that's tough. I think that's something that a good brand does. A company that's honest about the brand it's putting out there will attract people that are a fit to the culture that it's building internally. But I guess more on recruitment, I always joke that I like people who type really fast because that proves to me that whatever I try to get you to do, at the minimum, your interface with the computer will be faster than the next person. But overall, I think, you know, anyone who's ambitious, willing to learn and shows curiosity outside of their direct professional vertical is someone that would do very well at buoyancy in our culture. That's great. Well, I think kind of uh, we can can end it on that note. I'd love to thank you, Lebo, for joining us. It's uh, great to have you. It's very great to reconnect with you after some time. Absolutely. Love the hair. Uh, I knew you would shorter. <laughs> oh, hair. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> should, should show everyone the, the COVID it's, hair. It's good, man. It's, it's <laughs> way better. My hair's a disaster. That's why I wear a hat. So maybe you can kind of let people know where they can find you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So feel free to drop me an email at Lebo at Voyancy. Um, I'll type it in the chat. It's the V-O-Y-N-S-I. You can find me, I think, at Lebo, Lebo, Lebo on Instagram. Or I got a Twitter recently, the real Lee Bully, if you want to DM me there. But yeah, just drop me a line. I'm on LinkedIn. Message me on LinkedIn. I'm oh, available. Exciting to have you on Twitter. <laughs> Can't wait for you for all the hot takes on Twitter. Well, everyone, thank you. I just want to talk a little bit about Monograph real quick before we sign off. So mm-hmm. at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations. We've talked a lot about that today. For architects and other design professionals, we make it very easy for you and your team to track time and visualize how that time impacts in real-time budget, projects, and even your team resources, all in real-time again. So with Monograph, you'll never have to make decisions again in the dark. And that's great. Thanks, everyone. Can I give Monograph a quick plug? Uh, sure. So in all the softwares, especially if you're worried about adoption and you know the transformation to kind of digital practice, never underestimate the effect of a good UX. Good user experience will carry your users into the platform and the software with embedded back practices in ways that you can't imagine. So Monograph with their UX, by far, I think much more adapted to the type of project management in the industry than kind of out of the box software elsewhere. 
I really appreciate that. Yeah, we invest a lot of time and energy just trying to make sure that people have a really good onboarding experience. And we've released some new embedded support options that are going to be, I think they're being well received right now. So thanks for that. Really appreciate it. The customer cares. Where is that? Yeah. Josh agrees here in the in the channel. That's awesome, Josh. Thanks. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.